Gresham College presents Beanstalk or Living Instrument How Tall Can the European Convention on Human Rights Grow? by the Right Honourable the Baroness Hale of Richmond, DBE. Um, good evening, my lords, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Gresham College. I'm Roderick Flood, the Provost of the College, and I'm delighted to be chairing once again the, the Greys in Reading. Um, we at Gresham greatly value our connection through this annual lecture with our nearest Inn of Court and its members. And we're delighted that the Treasurer of the Inn is able to be with us this evening. Our speaker this evening, uh, Brenda Hale, uh, follows another Justice of the Supreme Court, David Hope, who was last year's lecturer. Brenda was a distinguished, still is, a distinguished academic lawyer specialising in family and mental health law at the University of Manchester before she rose through the ranks of the judiciary to its peak in the Supreme Court. She's been a trustee of a number of bodies in her field and has maintained academic connections with particularly Girton College, her Cambridge College of which she's a visitor. Her eminence and as an academic and practising lawyer has been recognised I calculated from who's who by at least 15 honorary degrees from British universities. And I'm very pleased to say that one of them was from my old university, London Guildhall. David Hope and Nick Phillips, who gave the latter of whom gave the Gresham Special Lecture in 2010, both spoke about the work of the Supreme Court. That work, of course, involves the interpretation in a UK context of the European Convention of Human Rights and of the Human Rights Act. And this has become a contentious topic as politicians who should know better inveigh against decisions which they don't like or which they think fetter their power to do as they choose. Recently, the government has announced its intention to seek to change the procedures and perhaps the personnel of the European Court. So Brenda Hale's Grace in Reading, which I now invite her to deliver, is highly topical. Her title is Beanstalk or Living Instrument, How Tall Can the European Convention on Human Rights Grow? Brenda. Well, thank you very much, Sir Roderick, for the introduction. Um, I'm afraid the title is the most interesting thing about this lecture. <laughs> so, we are used to reading that the European Convention on Human Rights is a living instrument. And this goes back at least as far as 1978 and the case of Tyra and the United Kingdom. A schoolboy in the Isle of Man was sentenced by the juvenile court to three strokes of the birch for taking part with three other boys in an assault upon an older schoolboy, apparently as revenge for his reporting them to the school authorities for taking beer into the school, for which they were caned at the school. But there you go. Uh, the Strasbourg court held that the judicial birching was degrading punishment contrary to Article 3 of the Convention. The British judge, Sir Gerald Fitzmaurice, disagreed. He thought that there was nothing degrading about the judicially ordered birching of a juvenile. 
He did acknowledge that his view might have been colored by being brought up and educated under a system in which corporal punishment was regarded as the normal sanction for naughty boys uh, and usually carried out with none of the safeguards that there were in this case. He was not aware that anyone found it degrading or debasing. The majority uh, obviously thought that this was an outdated attitude. They stressed that, quote, the convention is a living instrument which must be interpreted in the light of present-day conditions. The court cannot but be influenced by the developments and commonly accepted standards in the penal policy of the member states of the Council of Europe. Now, this expression, living instrument, is reminiscent of the even more vivid expression used by Lord Sankey in the 1930 Privy Council case of Edwards and the Attorney General of Canada. There, he remarked that the Constitution of Canada should be seen as a living tree capable of growth and expansion within its natural limits. Now, the issue in Edwards was whether women were persons. Uh, who could become members of the Senate, the upper house of the Canadian Parliament. Now, it's scarcely surprising that the Canadian courts had thought that they were not. The British North America Act, which contained the Canadian Constitution, was passed in 1867. And as late as 1909, in a case called Nairn and the University of St Andrews, the House of Lords had held that women graduates from Scottish universities were not persons and therefore could not vote uh, in the election of members of parliament for these Scottish universities. But in 1930, uh, Lord Sankey swept all that away, blithely with the assertion that their lordships, quote, did not think it right to apply rigidly to the Canada of today the decisions and the reasons, therefore, which commended themselves, probably rightly, to those who had to apply the law in different circumstances, in different centuries, in different stages of development. End of quote. Now, Edwards tells me two things, apart from the fact that women are people. Um, the first is that the image of a living tree may be more helpful than the image of a living instrument. A violin is an instrument, but it has no life of its own only the life it is given by the violinist who plays it. A tree has a life of its own, but it can only grow and develop within its natural limits. It is not an unstoppable beanstalk grown from a magic bean. At a time when many are worried about how far the European Convention on Human Rights may develop beyond the original expectations of its framers, it seems reasonable, therefore, to ask whether there are any natural limits on its growth and what those might be. But the second thing that Edwards tells me is that the common law is no stranger to what Strasbourg calls the evolutive interpretation of the law, especially in the field of fundamental rights. It is as well to remind ourselves of our own approach before getting too excited about Europe's. So the evolutive approach of the common law. We are used to adapting our judge-made law to meet new problems and new factual situations. But the theory is that this is what the law has always been. If we depart from previous precedent, we are simply correcting past errors. Many of you will be familiar with the famous quotation from the great Scottish law lord, Lord Reed, in 1971, when he said, there was a time when it was thought almost indecent to suggest that judges make law, they only declare it. 
Those with a taste for fairy tales seem to have thought that in some Aladdin's cave there is hidden the common law in all its splendour, and that on a judge's appointment there descends upon him knowledge of the magic words open sesame. Bad decisions are given when the judge has muddled the password and the wrong door opens. But we do not believe in fairy tales anymore. Nevertheless, uh, we do recognise some important limits. First, we are seeking to identify and apply the underlying principles of the law, extending and adapting them to meet new situations, but not turning them on their head. Secondly, there are some things which are better left to Parliament. This is not so much that we defer to Parliament, still less that they are more democratic than we are. The courts are just as essential to a democracy based on the rule of law as is Parliament. It is rather a question of institutional competence. The courts can develop and adapt within existing concepts and principles. So, for example, it seemed to two of us that the principles of the tort of conversion converting other people's property to one's own use, could readily be extended from chattels to intangible property. Uh, on the other hand, the courts cannot engage in empirical research or conduct a public opinion polls, so that there may be dangers in departing from a long-established rule of the common law without a better empirical base uh, than we can have in the courts. And the courts cannot legislate. We cannot devise whole new legislative schemes. And that, as you, we can see, is giving us some problems with the implementation of the Convention at present. There are also some things which ought to be decided by a democratically elected parliament rather than by the courts, although sometimes we despair of their ever doing so. The best-known example of that is Airedale, NHS Trust and Bland, where the law lord said, oh, parliament, please legislate about when it is permissible uh, to withdraw artificial uh, hydration uh, and nutrition, uh, but Parliament, uh, at least until recently, resolutely refused to do so. Thirdly, of course, we are mindful uh, that changes in judge-made law operate retrospectively, so that, at the very least, we should stay within the bounds of what is foreseeable. We, too, recognise the importance of legal certainty. So those three important limits to what we uh, can do in developing the common law. As a very good example of these principles in operation uh, was the recognition that marital rape was a crime. In a case called uh, the Queen against R, the House of Lords abolished the long-standing rule that a wife was deemed always to consent to sexual intercourse with her husband. Although their lordships do not say so, I am pretty sure that they were heavily influenced by the detailed discussion of the policy issues in the Law Commission's consultation paper on the same subject, which gave them the courage to think that they knew what the arguments were and could proceed uh, in a principled way. Uh, but on the face of it, that change offended against Article 7 of the European Convention, uh, which says that you cannot impose punishment for conduct which was not a crime at the time that it was committed. Nevertheless, Strasbourg held that the concept of lawfulness does not prevent the gradual clarification of the criminal law from case to case, provided that the resultant development is consistent with the essence of the offence and could reasonably be foreseen. When it comes to the interpretation of statutes, uh, again, uh, we can develop the law. 
We can hold that a lower court has got it wrong, even though many people have hitherto arranged their affairs on the basis of an earlier interpretation. We can also hold that the House of Lords, or in future the Supreme Court, has got it wrong in the past. But once again, as with the common law, the theory is that we are trying to divine what Parliament really meant. We are trying to uphold the intention of Parliament rather than to subvert it. Uh, which is why, to my mind, it may be easier to justify a departure from a precedent which interprets a statutory provision if we become satisfied that a previous interpretation was a mistake and not what Parliament meant than it is to justify abandoning a long-standing rule of the common law. Divining the intention of Parliament is, of course, mostly an illusion because on most points which come before us, Parliament did not have any intention at all. It had never been thought of. So we have to deduce the intention of the legislation from the words which Parliament has used read in the light of the statutory purpose. However, it is comparatively rare that an Act of Parliament has to be construed and applied exactly as it would have been applied when it was first passed. Statutes are said to be always speaking and so must be made to apply to situations which would never have been contemplated when uh, they first hit the statute book. So in 2001, a member of the family, an expression first used in 1920, could be held to include a same-sex partner. In 1998, bodily harm uh, in a statute of 1861 could be held to include psychiatric harm. And in 2011, violence could be held to extend beyond physical contact into other sorts of violent behaviour. Now, in all of these examples, the court is seeking to further the purpose of the legislation in the social world as it now is, rather than it was when the statute was passed, but to do so in a principled and predictable way which will not offend against either the intention of Parliament or the principle of legal certainty. I'm aware that not everybody thinks that we succeed in these aims, but I'm telling you what the aims are. Now, to what extent do those principles conflict with anything which we see in Strasbourg in the evolution of the uh, convention? How do our notions of the Aladdin's cave of the common law and the always speaking statute differ from the convention concept of a living instrument? Well, we can be quite clear in relation to the convention, there is no room for the more extreme versions of American uh, originalism. Whether this is based on what the original drafters of the convention must be taken actually to have meant, or upon what the original readers must be taken to have thought that they meant. One is called intentionalism and the other is called textualism. Either way, that doesn't apply in Strasbourg. The landmark Strasbourg decisions are well known to many of us. They were Gelder in the United Kingdom, Tyra in the United Kingdom, Marx in Belgium, and Airy and Ireland. Now, I don't think it's any coincidence that three out of those four landmark cases came from common law countries. It was common law advocates who persuaded the court to take the line that it took in those cases, even in the teeth of strongly argued dissent from the United Kingdom judge in almost all of those cases. Now, it seems to me that there are three governing ideas behind the evolution of the living instrument, 
and that these in turn have led to the further development of the convention rights in at least four different ways. The first and perhaps the most important of the governing ideas is that of a purposive rather than a literal construction of the language used. Thus, in Golda in the United Kingdom, the court relied on Article 31 of the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties to give priority to the object and purpose of the convention. And as stated in the preamble, this was, as governments of European countries which are like-minded and have a common heritage of political traditions, ideals, freedom, and the rule of law, to take the first steps for the collective enforcement of certain of the rights stated in the, European uh, in the Universal Declaration. Now, the United Nations adopted the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948, but translating this into a binding treaty was going to take years. Europe must go it alone. Now, access to the courts was an essential prerequisite of the rule of law to which those European nations were committed. Hence, the right of access to a court was inherent in the right to a fair trial under Article 6 of the Convention. So that's the object and purpose. Well, that's part of our doctrine of statutory interpretation in this country. The second idea articulated in Tyra is that the convention must be interpreted in the light of present-day developments and practices among the member states. If most of Europe thinks that judicially ordered corporal punishment is seriously degrading, then this will influence the interpretation of the convention rights. And the third idea, which was first articulated in Airy and Ireland, is that the rights protected must be practical and effective rather than theoretical or illusory. There is no point in having the right to go to a court if you cannot, in practice, exercise it. Now, views may differ on whether this living instrument idea is a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, Sir Gerald Fitzmaurice, the UK judge, dissented vigorously in Golda and Marx, as well as in Tyra. In Golda, he argued forcibly that judge-made law might be acceptable in domestic adjudication, but not in international adjudication, which depends upon the agreement between states. It's quite interesting, really. He was arguing, we can do things here that Strasbourg shouldn't do because it's an international treaty. Uh, and this does find an echo in the views of Lord Bingham, who is a strong supporter of the convention and the values it represents, but he did urge, in a case called Brown and Scott, caution in implying rights into the convention uh, because one might thereby be obliging member states to accept things uh, that they would not have been willing to accept when they entered into the uh, convention. And he returned to that theme in a case called Gentle, where we were being pressed to rule that the right to life in Article 2 implied a duty to ascertain whether the invasion of Iraq would be legal before putting troops in harm's way. Lord Bingham found it impossible to conceive that the proud sovereign states of Europe could ever have contemplated binding themselves legally to establish an independent inquiry into the process by which a decision might have been made to commit the state's armed forces to war. So, there are some doubts about it, but there we go. The Convention jurisprudence has undoubtedly developed beyond the expectations of the original parties. Some of these have proved more problematic than others. Now, the four ways that I wanted to look at were, firstly, the interpretation of the autonomous concepts in the Convention, 
Secondly, the implication of further rights than those expressed. Thirdly, the development of positive obligations. And fourthly, the narrowing of the margin of appreciation permitted to the member states in their interpretation and application of the Convention. Those are the four areas where the Convention has developed, and those are the four areas which cause us um, greater or lesser difficulty, as the case may be. Oh, so firstly, the autonomous concepts. This too goes back to the early days, to Engel and the Netherlands, where it was held that states could define conduct into the concept of a criminal charge for the purpose of the right to a fair trial, but they couldn't define conduct out of it. Now, it stands to reason, if you have a convention saying that there are certain minimum standards of a fair trial on a criminal charge, you can't individually contract out of those minimum standards by saying, oh, but that's not a criminal charge. It has to be a concept which has a uniform meaning uh, throughout uh, the um, member states. All sorts of key terms have to have a uniform meaning. And of course, it also stands to reason uh, that the meaning of those terms can develop over time in just the same way that our domestic understanding of words such as family and violence has developed over time. So there are many obvious examples. Recognising that unmarried fathers may enjoy family life with their children, which is worthy of respect under Article 8. Recognising that homosexuals have as much right to respect for their private expression of their sexuality as anyone else has. Recognising that discrimination may include not only direct but indirect discrimination. For example, in school selection criteria which discriminate indirectly against Roma children. Indeed, there are things that might, may worry why the court hasn't actually recognised them um, yet. The court is sometimes quite a conservative institution. But these are all examples of applying the language of the Convention to situations which may not have been contemplated by the original framers, but which are entirely capable of being covered by the language used and are consistent with its underlying principles and purpose. And it's also an approach which can have built-in limits. In uh, the Countryside Alliance case, uh, where we were deciding whether... Um, the Hunting Act infringed the right to freedom of association in Article 11 and the right to respect for private life in Article 8. It was argued that the ban on hunting with dogs was an interference with the right to respect for private life. And two of the law lords, neither of whom is noted for an expansive approach to the convention rights, took the view that the notion of private life in Article 8 might well be capable of covering activities such as hunting, which a person saw as essential to his personality and his ability to develop relationships with other people. They were only persuaded that it was not private life because of the very public nature of hunting as an activity. It's something that you do in public. Uh, and in Friend and the United Kingdom, which was the follow-up case in Strasbourg, Strasbourg agreed that private life did not extend to public activities. So perhaps that is a natural limit to the growth of this otherwise extremely expansive concept. On the other hand, there are concepts which have been developed in such a way that we have had some difficulty in anticipating what the natural limits might be. The best example is a civil right for the purpose of the requirement in Article 6 for access to a court. 
when it was first passed, that fairly clearly did not involve public law rights. But now, what kind of public law claims count as civil rights? Now, we have decided that while it can cover claims to financial benefits, such as housing benefit, it doesn't cover claims to public services, such as health, social care, housing for the homeless. For what it is worth, our view is that this development has now reached its natural limit. Claims for services which require a high degree of discretionary judgment on the part of officials are not readily susceptible to court-like adjudication on the merits. Furthermore, the money which might be devoted to this would be better devoted to providing and improving the services rather than, forgive me, going into the lawyers' pockets. Um, but we have been wrong about this sort of thing before and no doubt will be wrong again. So what are the natural limits to that concept? That's the first area. Second area is the implication of rights. It's not difficult at all to understand how certain implied rights evolved. As I've said, the right of access to the courts to determine one's civil rights and liabilities is inherent in the right to a fair trial. It's also part of making that right practical and effective rather than theoretical or illusory. There's not much point in, having, in the state having a duty not to take life if no one can find out how and why a person died. So I think we all understood the need for the investigative duty in Article 2, the right to life, recognised by the court, the Strasbourg court, in the Death on the Rock case. But until recently, we had thought that it was ancillary to the principal duty to protect life. So in 2004, the House of Lords held that for the purpose of the Human Rights Act, which translated the Convention into rights in domestic law, the investigative duty did not apply to deaths which took place before the Act came into force. The investigative duty applied to the death. The Act wasn't enforced when the death took place. Therefore, the investigative duty didn't arise, and so it wasn't covered by the Human Rights Act. Simple, clear. We recognise, of course, that the United Kingdom might still be taken to Strasbourg, but that wasn't our concern. But then came the decisions of the Grand Chamber uh, in a case called Chile and Slovenia. And the Grand Chamber held that the investigative duty under Article 2 had now evolved into a separate and autonomous duty, detached from the main duty not to take life, and it was therefore capable of binding a member state even when the death took place before the convention came into force in that member state. And if the obligation persisted after that date, there could be an interference with it for which the state was to be held accountable. Provided that a significant proportion of the steps required will have been or should have been carried out after the critical date, the state can be held liable. Now, that's a very difficult question, and it's a very difficult and controversial question in Strasbourg. There was a vigorous dissent from the British judge and one other saying, you are imposing obligations retrospectively on citizens, uh, on states uh, that, didn't, uh, that didn't exist when they signed up to the uh, convention. Of course, it arose for us uh, in the context of Ireland, um, in the recent case in McCaughey, uh, we were invited to hold now that the duty to investigate had been detached from the death, and so in certain circumstances, 
There was a duty to hold an Article II compliant investigation into the circumstances surrounding a state agent killing, even though the death had taken place before the Human Rights Act came into force. Uh, and we held that that was indeed the case. Uh, in those particular cases, there was going to be an inquest in any event. So we didn't really have to ask ourselves how far did the Chile decision go, uh, because clearly the state had accepted that it had an obligation to investigate, uh, and it seemed only sensible that if there was an obligation to investigate, it should be an Article II compliant investigation. Uh, but I'm not sure that we've heard the last of that particular question. There's another implied right which is causing a rather different sort of difficulty at present, although not in the courts. Once again, there is no real problem with the implication of the right itself. The obligation in Article 3 of Protocol 1 to hold free elections at reasonable intervals by secret ballot under conditions which will ensure the free expression of the opinion of the people in the choice of the legislature must imply that individuals have the right to vote. Indeed, in modern times, it must dictate that universal suffrage is the basic principle. Strasbourg held that as long ago as 1988. But of course, it doesn't dictate what method of counting there should be, first past the post, single transferable vote, or any other method of proportional representation that you might care to uh, latch onto. Uh, the question, however, arises of how far that implied right should dictate who is entitled to vote. Now, the right to vote is a sore point with at least one of my colleagues. Before the establishment of the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom in October 2009, the highest court in the United Kingdom, as you all know, was composed of members of the House of Lords. Members of the House of Lords cannot vote in parliamentary elections. We can vote in European elections, we can vote in local elections. But because we're already members of the Parliament, we can't vote uh, in parliamentary elections. When most of the hereditary peers were expelled from the House, they ceased to be members, and so they regained the vote. We, on the other hand, have not ceased to be members of the House of Lords. Uh, we have merely been deprived of the right to speak and vote on the business of the House. And we still can't vote in parliamentary elections. Now, one of my colleagues believes this to be a disproportionate interference in his democratic rights under Article uh, 3 of the First Protocol. So perhaps one of these days, Strasbourg will have to contend with the case of Brown and the United Kingdom. <laughs> now, I am actually puzzled as to how he's going to be able to uh, exhaust his domestic remedies, uh, which you have to do before going to Strasbourg, because at present, any panel of the Supreme Court at present would have a majority of people who are in the same position as he is. That fairly soon won't be true, uh, but uh, at the moment, that is the situation. But of course, it's not this which is so troubling Parliament, and particularly the House of Commons at present. They are agonising about what, if anything, to do about the Strasbourg decision in Hearst and the United Kingdom, that a blanket ban on all prisoners serving a sentence of imprisonment breaches Article 3 of the First Protocol. The government, apparently on legal advice, proposed a ban on all prisoners serving a sentence of four years imprisonment or more. This proved unacceptable to their own backbenchers, 
But a compromise proposal of one year or more is also proving unacceptable. Now, I don't want to say anything about the answer. The whole debate raises a fundamental question about the purpose and scope of human rights instruments. Is it the right of the democratically elected parliament to decide who their electorate should be? Or is the whole point of the convention to protect certain values independently of the will of the majority? Does democracy value each person equally, even if the majority does not? And in any event, who represents the majority? To what extent should any court uh, be sensitive to the strongly held views of the current majority? It is debates like that which make me very glad of the way in which the Human Rights Act incorporated the Convention into our law. If a provision in an Act of Parliament is incompatible with the Convention rights, the most we can do is make a declaration to that effect. That leaves the provision intact, and anything which is done under it remains valid. It is up to Parliament to decide what to do about it. But of course, there will be, uh, for the purpose of the present discussion, some who think that Hearst was an entirely predictable and principled development of the rights enshrined in Article 3 of the First Protocol, and others who do not. Moving on to positive obligations. The third area of evolution, uh, where it can be both beneficial and problematic, uh, is positive obligations. Now, we know that the dividing line between negative obligations, which is most of what the Convention says, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, most of it, and positive obligations, thou shalt, thou shalt, thou shalt, uh, is not precise. But in Marx and Belgium, one of the very early cases, it was held that the right to respect for family life required more than that the state should not interfere in the actual family life which an unmarried mother enjoyed with her child. It required the law to recognise that that family life existed and create the circumstances which would allow it to develop. In other words, they boldly said you can't discriminate between the children of married and unmarried parents. Once again, there was a vigorous dissent from Sir Gerald Fitzmaurice, um, who did not think that it was the point of Article 8 uh, to, um, to rule on the legal rights of babies. Uh, but few would now see Marx and Belgium as controversial. The same must apply to the development of positive procedural obligations under Article 8. There's not much point in having a right to respect your family life if you have no say in the authorities' decisions to interfere with it to such an extent as more or less to destroy it. And that obligation uh, to have procedural uh, entitlements dates back to the disgraceful state of English law before the Children Act 1989, when public authorities could deny parents all contact with children who are in care without any access to any sort of court to try and give them a right to that contact. Now, this was put right in the Children Act 1989. In fact, it was put right earlier than that because of a decision in Strasbourg. Uh, but we've recently had another example in the Supreme Court of a denial of procedural protection to parents when the state is interfering in their family life. Uh, so uh, these problems don't go away. But the more controversial area is the development of substantive positive obligations for the state actually to provide some benefit 
which it would not otherwise be obliged to or wish to provide. In other words, socio-economic rights. Now, again, they're not obviously there in the Convention at all. Uh, but are we beginning to see the glimmerings of the development of such rights? And in a case called N and the Secretary of State for the Home Department, the House of Lords concluded, albeit with heavy heart, that the United Kingdom was not precluded from returning a failed asylum seeker with HIV AIDS to her home country, despite the obvious risks to her health, indeed to her life, uh, if she was returned. And in essence, the reasoning was that it was not possible to spell out of the prohibition of inhuman treatment in Article 3 a positive obligation to continue to supply her and everyone else in her sad situation with the health care which she needed. And interestingly, Strasbourg upheld that decision. In a case called Limbuella, on the other hand, uh, the House of Lords held that it was inhuman and degrading treatment deliberately to reduce certain categories of asylum seeker to utter destitution by denying them any access to state support and prohibiting them from taking paid employment. Now, although the House of Lords took comfort from the lack of any clear dividing line between positive and negative obligations, this did, in reality, amount to imposing upon the state a positive obligation to provide support for those who had nothing else. I slightly think that might be an example of the United Kingdom getting slightly ahead of Strasbourg rather than the other way about. Um, Strasbourg doesn't mind if we get ahead of them. It's the other way around that matters. And the other way around, what about housing? Now, Strasbourg has said there is no duty to supply a person with a home. But Strasbourg is developing a duty not to deprive a person of the home he already has even in circumstances where there is no duty in domestic law to continue to supply him with it. Now, I do understand the temptation to apply exactly the same kind of proportionality analysis to depriving someone of their established home as we all apply to depriving someone of their established family life. Now, both in Article 8, it's very tempting to do it in the same way. But in the case of family life, that does not entail a positive obligation to provide a person with family life. It is there because of the personal relationships which have developed between the people involved. But in the case of a home, bricks and mortar, it does mean continuing to provide a tangible material good which would otherwise be available to somebody else who may be in a much more deserving situation. So a court hearing an individual possession action is going to find it hard to strike a fair balance between the interests of all those other unidentified people who really need the home in question and the particular poor person before the court who's got themselves into difficulties and has given a cast-iron case to the local authority to get possession of their social housing. Very difficult for any court, especially a busy county court hearing a possession list to strike that balance. And, of course, it brings the court straight up 
against the judgments which Parliament has made as to who is and who is not entitled to be provided with subsidised social housing. So are we beginning to see in Strasbourg the emergence of socio-economic rights in this field, even though they are nowhere else to be found in the Convention? And do we think that's a good thing or a bad thing? And then the final area of difficulty is narrowing the margin of appreciation. Now, when it comes to the qualified rights, those which are a right not to have something done or occasionally to have something done unless there's a justification, Strasbourg has usually conceded a wide margin of appreciation to national authorities to judge what is necessary in a democratic society. And this is where the potential conflict between democratic values, as enshrined in the Convention, and democratic decisions, as made by the democratically elected and accountable institutions, becomes most acute. The evolutive approach to interpreting the Convention tends to lead to a narrowing of the margin of appreciation which Strasbourg allows to the uh, national authorities. Now, when only the courts suffer, because Strasbourg takes a different view of the merits of a particular case than the one which we take, well, perhaps we shouldn't mind too much. But what if Strasbourg were to take a different view to the considered opinion of the legislature in the case of a qualified right? Now, here again, I can appeal to Lord Bingham in the Hunting Act case. He appealed to the degree of respect to be shown to the considered judgment of a democratic assembly. While acknowledging that this will vary according to the subject matter and the circumstances, the case in question, he said, was preeminently one in which respect to be shown, should be shown to what the House of Commons decided. The democratic process is liable to be subverted if, on a question of moral and political judgment, opponents of the Act achieve through the courts what they couldn't achieve in Parliament. You do know that the hunting bill took more time in Parliament than any other piece of legislation uh, during the previous uh, administration and also resulted in probably more bits of litigation before the House of Lords than any other piece of, of litigation. It was great fun. Well, Strasbourg agreed with Lord Bingham. When they rejected the huntsman's complaints, they commented that the bans had been introduced after extensive debate by the democratically elected representatives of the state on the social and ethical issues raised by that type of hunting. But sometimes we have been troubled by the apparent narrowing of the margin. Hearst is one example, I've already mentioned, the voting case. Essen Marpa and the United Kingdom may be another. It leaves the United Kingdom in the difficult position of being told that a blanket and indiscriminate power to hold fingerprints, cellular samples, and DNA profiles, as applied to the applicants in that case, overstepped the margin of appreciation. This despite the fact that it was indeed the carefully considered decision of a democratically elected uh, legislature. Yet beyond saying in that case that the legislation had gone too far, the decision gives very little guidance on what rules would be proportionate to the admittedly legitimate and important aims of detecting and deterring crime. 
Now, my particular concern is that the positive obligation to protect the vulnerable against rape and other attacks on the right to respect for their bodily integrity should not be hindered or hampered by an unduly restrictive approach uh, to the machinery available for detecting and deterring it. So it's no wonder that Parliament has taken very different views about where the balance should be struck. Uh, the United Kingdom courts are in exactly the same position as Strasbourg. They cannot draft a legislative scheme to remedy the problem. Uh, the most we can do is to decide whether the right balance has been struck in an individual case. So all we did in the recent case where this came back before us was to hold uh, that the uh, earlier guidance given by the Association of Chief Police Officers uh, was, was wrong, uh, incompatible with the convention rights, uh, but we said, because Parliament's got it in hand, we're not going to do anything more. Talk about ducking the issue. So, you see, we deeply respect what Parliament decides to do. So, having skimmed through all of these problems, what are the limits to the growth of the living tree? They're not set by the literal meaning of the words used. They're not set by the intentions of the drafters of the Convention, whether actual or presumed. They're not even set by what the drafters definitely did not intend. There's a well-known case of Young, James and Webster in the United Kingdom, where Strasbourg decided that the Article 11 right of freedom of association, which had definitely been intended to protect the right to join a trade union, also protected the right not to join a trade union, a right which had been deliberately omitted from the Convention in 1950. But they held that it was necessarily part of the same uh, right. So those are the things that don't limit it. But there must be some limits. I've sketched out some of the particular areas of difficulty for a national court, which is trying loyally to keep pace with the evolution and on occasions to make a reasonable prediction of where Strasbourg will go next. In the end, the standard which has most appealed to the court's jurisprudence is the common European understanding. Sometimes, as in S and Marpa, this is judged by the standards to be found in the domestic legislation of the member states. At other times, as in Marx and Belgium, it is judged by evolving European attitudes and beliefs. And sometimes, as in Hearst in the United Kingdom, it seems to get some way ahead of both of them because bans on prisoners voting are common throughout Europe. The key element, it seems to me, is that the development should be a predictable one. It should not contradict the express language of the Convention. It should be consistent with the established principles of Convention jurisprudence. It should also be consistent with the standards set in other international instruments relevant to the subject matter in hand, such as the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child or the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. It should reflect the common European understanding, however that may be deduced. And it should seek to strike a fair balance between the universal values of freedom and equality which are embodied in the Convention and the particular choices made by the democratically elected parliaments of the member states. Some values, such as the right to life and freedom from torture, are non-negotiable, but others are more delicately nuanced. And as a supporter of the Convention and the work of the Strasbourg Court, my plea to them is to accept 
that there are some natural limits to the growth and development of the living tree. Otherwise, I have a fear that their judgments and those of the national courts which follow them will increasingly be defied by our governments and parliament. That's a very rare phenomenon at present, and long may it remain so. Thank you. fascinating discussion. Um, we do have a few minutes for questions if anybody would like to ask a question at this stage. And there's some microphones uh, which will come round. Yes, one down here. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, my question is whether or not is there any way you can ever really balance um, conflicting um, freedoms in the European Convention? And I'm thinking particularly on the one hand of the freedom of expression and on the other hand the, uh, the right to privacy. Thank you. <laughs> I, I think that was a foreseeable question. <laughs> and of course the foreseeable answer is that that's what you have to do. <laughs> and it's not easy, uh, but if you look at each of those rights, the right to respect for private life, family life, home and correspondent, and you look at the reasons why you can uh, interfere with that, and you ask whether the reason and the means of the interference are proportionate to the degree of interference, and then you look at the right to freedom of expression, and you look at the reasons why you can curtail the right to freedom of expression, and you do that. One of them is to protect the rights and freedoms of others. You look at, well, is what you've done proportionate to the degree of interference? So you could ask yourself, and the importance of the right. Political speech is very important in any democracy. So you would want to be very cautious indeed about imposing restrictions on political speech in order to protect some private or family life. On the other hand, it could be said that for the most part, gossip is not so important. I'm choosing my words with some care. Um, and that there may be circumstances in which the public interest, in the real sense, in having the information in question, because that's part of freedom of expression, is an interest in having information, is sufficient to outweigh the degree of interference. And so you have to look at the degree of interference as well. Now, how much harm is it doing? Uh, and what's the reason you want to know? Now, I'm not saying this is an easy thing to do, but it is what the convention requires. And I suspect that most of us would think it was quite a sensible thing that you had to balance those two interests and that you could never draft a law which said exactly where the balance was to be struck in all circumstances. That's what I'd say. Any other questions? Um, the Prime Minister recently accused judges of introducing a privacy law through the back door. How do you feel about that? I'm sure he didn't mean it. <laughs> uh, 
he, he must know that all the judges have been doing is seeking loyally to apply what they're required to do in uh, Section 6 of the Human Rights Act. Section 6 of the Human Rights Act says public authorities must act compatibly with the convention rights. Courts are public authorities. There are the two convention rights in question, which I have been uh, mentioning in answer to the last question. Uh, and so the courts have been trying very hard to balance those rights. Not saying we always get it right. Of course we don't. Um, I must say, if people don't like the answer that, they've, that has been given on an ex parte application at first instance, they have a lot of remedies within the court system for seeking to say that the balance has been improperly struck. They can turn up on an inter-parties application that's on a, when both parties are there and say, that was wrong. Uh, and after that, if they don't like the answer, they can try and appeal. But that doesn't seem to happen very much. So, no, it's not by the back door. It's by what Parliament itself has asked us to do. To what extent do you think some of the weaknesses in our laws, uh, including human rights, is due to the uh, inexactness of the, of the drafting of our legislation? And uh, a cynical member of the public, such as myself, might think that's deliberate rather than just incompetence. You quoted a case of 1950, uh, a trade union uh, reference, where the right to vote was incorporated, but not the right not to vote. Mm. Surely that was a pretty obvious case. Where were all the experts? I mean, uh, doesn't the legal profession uh, take some responsibility for this? <laughs> uh, well, I don't think it's my place to speak ill of the dead. Um, the European Convention was largely drafted by British lawyers. Um, it was drafted in much more precise terms than many of the continental lawyers had wanted it to be. Because our tradition in the United Kingdom is actually to have really quite precise laws rather than stating a vague general principle and leaving it to be worked out. That's our general technique when you think about it, if you go away and read the European Convention, of course it needs applying to any particular case, but it actually is worth a good read because every word that it uses has a meaning and is quite carefully thought out. So I think the problems are really human problems. Life changes, views change, um, different problems arise uh, and uh, the problems for courts are to find a solution to those problems when they do arise. So I don't think we can really... As, as I said, very frequently the actual problem that arises on a UK statute when we have to construe it hasn't been thought of because you can't think of everything. And the UK style of drafting is to be quite precise... And that causes problems because they've been too precise and they haven't thought of everything. So it's always a difficult balance between trying to establish a general principle which can then be applied appropriately or trying to legislate for every occasion. Difficult. I think just one more question and then we... Thank you. 
way here, I happened to read that um, it, it, it was suggested that you were not in favour of prenuptial agreements. <laughs> and I was wondering if, if that is so, uh, why that was. <laughs> well, I think that's a bit out of scope, isn't it? <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. There is a decision of the Supreme Court um, of the United Kingdom in a case called Radmacher and Granatino, or Granatino and Radmacher. That's the name of the case. And if you go on the website of the United Kingdom Supreme Court, you can download the judgment in that case. It's quite a good read. <laughs> and you can read why I disagreed with seven and a half of my colleagues. But you can also dis read why seven and a half of my colleagues disagreed with me. <laughs> Thank you very much, Lady um, I'll ask Lord Morgan to move a vote of thanks. Professor Flood, uh, ladies and gentlemen, very great privilege to, to be asked uh, to move the vote of thanks to uh, Baroness Hale. I first set eyes on Baroness Hale um, when she was sworn in to the House of Lords, which is quite a, a memorable occasion because uh, it was translated very literally by the clock that she would retain her title as long as she behaved herself. <laughs> and that produced a certain amount of hilarity and I concluded from that that uh, Baroness Hale was uh, both a very human person and a rather jolly person and it's been rather confirmed uh, this evening. She's, uh, as we all know, a most extraordinary and distinguished uh, person, uh, of course, as everybody knows, the only woman on the Supreme Court and has been... Uh, uh, a somewhat caustic commentator on that fact herself. She is uh, an academic by background, which I think is unusual uh, in the Supreme Court and is self-evidently a good thing. Uh, she has had a background not in commercial law, as so many justices do, but in social and deeply sensitive uh, issues uh, relating, as we have heard, to, to, to children, uh, to families, to gender discrimination, uh, to uh, a variety of mental health, a variety of issues of that kind, a very deep interest in human equality, which uh, heaven knows is much needed in this uh, country. Uh, and I think all these remarkable features are, of her concerns uh, have illuminated and distinguished the fascinating lecture we've heard tonight. I am not a lawyer, unlike most of, or perhaps many of the people present, but I, I've been very struck by the way that what Baroness Hale has had to say has chimed in with perhaps my two main interests in life. Uh, firstly, as a historian, it is extraordinary how the European Convention uh, on Human Rights has changed the history of our country. It was signed up to by Britain, I think, in 1951, not greatly mentioned by historians of the Attlee government, of whom I am one, and I fully include myself in that criticism, but it's had this growing and extraordinary impact. Uh, our history has been uh, transformed by it, and of course by the Act uh, of uh, 1998, uh, the way in which, for example, the judiciary is now so central to uh, 
uh, discussion and debate and uh, decision about key issues in our constitution is very, very different from decades ago. Many, many questions have been opened up about, for example, the relationship uh, between parliamentary sovereignty and the rule of law, with the result, it seems to me, that so many of the books on the British Constitution now, from the Great Dicey onwards, are just totally out of date. We ought to throw them away and begin all over again. I'm also struck by how, uh, being, uh, uh, if it's not a contradictory in, ter in terms, uh, a working peer, uh, how um, observing the business of our legislature has been totally transformed, I think very interestingly, in the House of Lords, because rightly or wrongly, the House of Lords has tended to claim a particular expertise or, or interest in legal and constitutional matters. And we've had some very fascinating discussions, discussions because Baroness Hale indicated uh, are not, in fact, uh, illuminated uh, by uh, the observations of the law lords uh, who, who are deprived from, from uh, prevented from commenting. I, I'm afraid I did make a rather caustic remark on that when we were debating it and it was said that um, uh, it was fine for the law lords to turn up as long as they didn't say anything. Uh, and, and I reflected there's a famous old Latin tag, si tacuisses for the sophus Manuises, which means if you shut up, you remain a philosopher, and that seemed to be roughly the view that people were taking of the law lords. But deprived, nevertheless, of uh, the present law lords, though, of course, we have observations from some former uh, law lords, we have seen how really quite fundamental issues in, not only in the legislative process and the conception of the legislative process, have emerged. We've had very um, significant debates, I think, of the debates we've had on asylum seekers, uh, debates on the Counter-Terrorism Act, where some of these fundamental issues uh, flowing from the concept of human rights uh, have emerged, and we have had um, very um, significant uh, reassessment of them. So, so I, I see it as uh, the human rights issue is something that animates uh, and civilizes our legislative process. It's of intellectual and constitutional and philosophical importance, and I also think, uh, frankly, one of the glories of our country and something that makes it truly civilized. We have heard from Baroness Hale the complexities of a growing system of the uh, interpretation and analysis of human rights. As somebody said about devolution for Scotland and for Wales, it is a process, not an event. It goes on and the difficulties we have heard of, philosophical and difficulties of obligation, or whatever it might be, as to how far that should go. But it does seem to me uh, an extraordinarily valuable and, as I've said, civilizing uh, principle uh, I find it as a historian fascinating that it's not only a process of reinvigoration and renewal, uh, but also of reclamation, reclamation of many past uh, principles going back to the 17th century and people who theorize in a very un-British way about rights and about the importance of rights of the individual. So we've heard 
uh, a fascinating and uh, deeply authoritative account of the principles that are involved. I think the conclusion that I draw is that uh, the judges are so central to our existence as a free society, they are in a very special sense the defenders of our liberties. And having heard this wonderful lecture this evening from the wisdom and humanity of Baroness Hale, I think we can take enormous confidence and enthusiasm in the prospect of the judges continuing to uh, play that role. So on behalf of everyone, if I may, I would like to thank most warmly and most sincerely Baroness Hale for a deeply enjoyable lecture. For all information, please go to our website at www.gresham.ac.uk.